Our scripture reading today is from Hebrews chapter 4. Therefore, since the promise of entering his rest still stands, let us be careful that none of you be found to have fallen short of it. For we also have had the good news proclaimed to us, just as they did. But the message they heard was of no value to them, because they did not share the faith of those who obeyed. Now we who have believed enter that rest, just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And yet his works have been finished since the creation of the world. For somewhere he has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And again, in the passage above, he says, they shall never enter my rest. Therefore, since it still remains for some to enter that rest, and since those who formerly had the good news proclaimed to them did not go in because of their disobedience, God again set a certain day, calling it today. This he did when a long time later he spoke through David, as in the passage already quoted. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from their works, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest, so that no one will perish by following their example of disobedience. For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has ascended into heaven, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. Amen. Amen, and uh, welcome to something. As you can see, we're calling the journey, and we're moving through, journeying through a number of things together this fall. Hopefully, all of you have been able to download our new app, and on the app, you've got daily devotionals in the book of Hebrews that are available for you Monday through Friday, and I've enjoyed reading them and seeing another uh, number of diverse voices on there, Sophia Stokes and Troy Robertson and Linda Mira, just to name a few, so you can take a look at those. Uh, I had a great community lunch last week. Thank you all for coming for that, and of course, as you heard, the Fall Fest will be at the end of October, so moving through a number of things, but the real reason we're calling this the journey is because we're looking at another journey that another group of people made their way through. This group of first century Christians here in the book of Hebrews were a group of people journeying through persecution, journeying through pain, journeying through suffering, journeying through uh, having their property legally confiscated, being legally put to death by the Roman Empire of the day, and it was getting so bad that they were on the verge of giving up, faltering, and losing their faith in Jesus altogether. What did they need? Well, what the unknown writer of the book of Hebrews presses you to see at every point is that at every point where your heart, like theirs, may be tempted to fail or to fall, or to lose its courage along the way that you need to see at that point the person of Jesus. 
Something about him, something about his nature or his character or his power or his person that only he can bring into your life. And here, the writer is going to say, chapter 4, that if we're going to make it on our journey, at some point, we're going to need to rest. We need rest. Oh, but not just physical rest, although we need that to be sure, but a deeper rest, a spiritual rest. The REM of the soul that only knowing Jesus can bring. To the people in Hebrews, they were weary. They were in need of rest, but they didn't know where to get it. They didn't know how to find it. How can we? How did they? Let's ask three questions of the passage and try to find some answers today. First, we're going to ask here, what's our problem? Number two, what's our need? And finally, how do we get it? How do we get what we really need? Let's begin and problematize here in number one and ask, what's our problem? Here we go. The summary statement of the whole passage is chapter four, verse three. It says this, now we who have believed enter that rest just as God has said. So I declared on oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. Oh, what's this mean? Well, what's happening here is that the writer of Hebrews is reaching back, picking up Psalm 95 from the Old Testament in a psalm where God was saying to his own people, his own people who had turned their back on him, who had rejected his law and his love and his goodness. And God said to him, said to them, now that you've rejected me, you will never rest. Wow, what's, what's happening here? It just means this. It means when people turn their backs on God, when they choose to live their own way, reject his love and his goodness in their life, the worst thing God can say to them is, you are never going to rest. You'll be like a wanderer the rest of your life. You rejecting me produces the same result inside your soul as working a dead-end job for forever without a day off would produce in your body. You living without me, see, will produce inside you a kind of lifestyle just like a slave's. That's what he's saying. Now, why is this being said? Why, why could never resting be the worst thing that can happen to someone? Well, here's why. When God gave the, the Ten Commandments, right, to the people of Israel coming out of slavery into the promised land, he gave them this as one of their commands, the, the commandment to take a Sabbath day, the one out of seven, one day a week, not to work, but to rest. Why? Well, think about when the Ten Commandments were given. They were given to the children of Israel coming out of slavery after four centuries of servitude and slavery, after 400 years of back-breaking toil and labor, their bodies, their culture, their souls, their families were broken, but God said, I freed you, now nevermore. Nevermore. My people were never meant to be slaves And therefore, when you create your little lowercase u universe, you must rest just like I rested when I created my capital U universe. See, I want to show you, prove to you, you're not just a cog in a machine. You're not a slave somewhere. You are free and resting, therefore, is possibly the most subversive act you will ever do. 
And by the way, just to show you how important this is, let's consider and press the implication here. By making this command, the commandment to rest, one of the ten commandments, God is showing us this, that a society, a culture that encourages Sabbath breaking is just as dehumanizing as a society and a culture that approves of murder. A society that affirms Sabbath breaking is just as cruel and evil as one that encourages lying. A society that encourages Sabbath breaking is just as guilty as one that approves of adultery. See, employers, this is saying, who do not encourage their employees to take a Sabbath are just as cruel as Egyptian taskmasters. And individuals who do not, will not obey the Sabbath show that deep down they're still slaves to something. And by the way, if there were ever a culture that needed to hear this, I think it's ours today. I mean, has there ever been a more serially Sabbath-breaking culture as ours today, more workaholics.com, right, than what we have? I think we have a problem. Our problem is we don't know how to rest why is this? Well, let me give you five quick reasons. I think we don't know how to rest. I'll move through them here. I think there's a, a number of different pressures we all experience. For example, I think we experience a technological pressure. Pressures us not to rest. How many of you will actually admit, come on, you're in church, right? God's here, uh, to buying or upgrading, rather, to that iPhone 8, maybe the X, iPhone X. Yeah, if you have, I think there was like one person, all who's admitted it. So, uh, yeah, but think about that. I mean, that's like a $1,000 computer in your hand. And like those things, I mean, way back in the ancient, mid-2000s, they were just called cell phones, right? We just made phone calls on them. That's crazy. It just makes a phone call, right? But now they're this nonstop source of videos, video game playing, distractions, and whistles, and bells, and beeps, and boops, and all kind of stuff. And I don't know about you, but I've got more emails, and texts, and voicemails to respond to than, you know, all kind of apps, and group me stuff that I could ever reply to and I feel so guilty about it. I just walk around all week with pastor guilt, so I'm sorry if that was you. I didn't get back to your deal, but I'm free now. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Come in. Got it off my chest. I'm absolved. Glory to God. That's why we're here, I think. We experience technological pressure. Technology pressures us not to rest. Secondly, I think we also experience a kind of cultural pressure pressure. You know, a hundred and even 200 years ago, for sure, and really uh, all through antiquity, the way people primarily got their meaning in life was through their family, through their relationships with their, their parents and their siblings and with their children, extended family. But now, by contrast, our meaning primarily doesn't come through our family anymore. You know, it comes from your job, what you've done, your resume, your list of accomplishments, your sense of achievement, how much you could possibly pull off at one time in life. And it's gotten so bad and so over the top ridiculous that we see, uh, you know, inspirational posters like this. Let me read it for you. It says, achievement. It says, don't ever stop at the highest mountain. I thought about that. I mean, that's supposed to be inspiring. If I don't stop at the highest mountain, when I get over that mountain, I'm going to fall and die. Right? I mean, is this encouraging me to like to kill myself? Yes, it is actually in pursuit 
of achievement. Do so much, you just may die. I think that's a kind of cultural pressure. We experience third. We experience the kind of economic pressure. I mean, no show of hands here. Please don't raise your hands. But if I were to ask you to raise your hand, how many of you would feel like if you just worked a 40-hour-a-week job, you could really get ahead financially? Oh, yeah. If only... Now, some of us, we make way more than just the average median American income, but most folks who make those upper-end salaries are expected without batting an eye to work 70, 80 hours a week. So yeah, they're, working, they're earning twice as much, but they're working twice as much. And the detriment of that, uh, their families and their bodies experience, or we'll just flip it to the other end of the financial economic spectrum. There's plenty of folks who don't make great money, and they're now working two, three jobs just to make ends meet. Everybody's overworked feeling economic pressure. I, I read about this story, I think it was last month, in New York, in Manhattan, financial capital of the U.S. A couple there had earned a ton of money, but the walls were closing in, and the only rest they could find was by grabbing each other's hands and jumping out of their high-rise, leaving two kids behind. Only rest they could find was in death. Fourth, we experience a kind of global pressure we didn't used to feel before. Now, because of our interconnected society, we are aware of every single tragedy on the face of the world. Every hurricane, earthquake, tsunami, killing, killing spree, somebody goes on shooting somewhere, it all comes into our eyes and ears and hearts in a way people in other cultures, civilizations have never experienced. It can be overwhelming to feel like I got to keep up with everything, respond to everything, know everything. And now, not only that, we live in a 24-hour, seven news cycle. When's the news open? I don't know, always. Somebody's always saying something dumb, tweeting something dumb. Somebody on the news is always picking up on that, posting that, commenting on that. You know, endless comments sections to read, which is, by the way, where reason and accountability go to die, the comment sections on the internet. But we feel this global pressure. You could literally never sleep just keeping up with the news. And fifth, and maybe even most significantly, I think there's a kind of spiritual pressure we experience. What's this? If you've ever seen the movie Creed, you know, it's a good movie. It's uh, based on the Rocky movies, right? The Italian boxer, uh, Sylvester Stallone, I mean Rocky Balboa, uh, and Rocky is there. And in the first movie, when he's pressed, when he's asked, why are you working so hard? Why are you willing to do anything just to be in this boxing match? He responds in a way, I think, reveals the heart of every single person in life at some point. And he says this, he says, if I can go the distance, you see, and that bell rings and I'm still standing, I'm going to know for the first time in my life, see, that I weren't just another bum from a neighborhood. What's he saying? He's saying, if I can do enough achieve enough, accomplish enough, then I'll be somebody. If I can do enough, I'll be enough. He's using his work to cover himself spiritually. He's looking into his achievements and saying, oh, what I do physically determines who I am spiritually. If I can do enough, I'll be enough. And that, and if I can do enough and be enough, I'll be able to make like five more Rocky movies. (laughs) And some of them will be good, some of them won't be good. That fourth one's going to have an awesome soundtrack, you know, the one with the Russian. But it's okay, because in the end, Creed's going to come along, my boy, Apollo's kid, and he's going to make it all okay. 
writer by the name of Judith Shulevitz wrote this article in the New York Times a few years ago, and she, in her, in her writing, talks about how the, the, she grew up in a traditional religious family and a faith community. She abandoned that as a young adult, and, but she found that something to her own detriment began to happen as she lived and worked a faithless life. She said, my mood would darken until by Sunday afternoon I'd be unresponsive and morose. My normal routine, which involved brunch with friends and swapping tales of misadventure in a relentless quest for romance and professional success, made me feel impossibly restless. I started spending Saturdays by myself. After a while, I got lonely and did something that, as a teenager, profoundly put off by her religious education, I could never have imagined wanting to do. I began dropping in on a nearby synagogue. It was only much later that I developed a theory about my condition. I was suffering from the lack of a Sabbath. There is ample evidence that our relationship to work is out of whack. Ours is a society that pegs status to overachievement. We can't help admiring workaholics. And I love this bit. She said, let me argue instead on behalf of an institution that has kept workaholism in reasonable check for thousands of years. And she goes on to say, we've got to bring back the Sabbath or we won't make it. We've got to rest or we won't make it on our journey. See, Shulevitz, the writer of Hebrews, Rocky, your own soul knows we've got a problem. We don't know how to rest. What do we need? What do we need? Number two, let's ask, what do we need? And if you said, well, duh, it's rest, Morgan. It's kind of the point of the whole deal. (laughs) Hang on. Not so fast. A little more complicated than that because if you've really read the book in depth or you've been paying close attention at home, you'll know, you've noticed by now, that the author of the book of Hebrews uses the word rest in three different ways, three different kinds of rest he mentioned, which shows us that biblically speaking, there are three kinds of rest we must have. The first, of course, is physical rest. Look at verse four. Again, for somewhere... He has spoken about the seventh day in these words. On the seventh day, God rested from all his works. And by the way, again, once again, if, you know, quoting chapter and verse and knowing who wrote what is not your cup of tea and you got a hard time with knowing where stuff is in the Bible, the writer of Hebrews is here for you. He's your kindred spirit. Where's it come from? I don't know. Someone's spoken. Who is it? Can't be stopped. I'm on a roll, baby. I'm writing a book. Don't ask me where it's from. He doesn't know who he's quoting either. You're in good company. I think he does, though. Here he's referencing Genesis 2, and he's saying, look, look, look. God, even though God didn't need to rest because he's like, you know, omnipotent. Even though God didn't need to rest, God rested from all his work. He was able to put down what he was doing and say no more. It's good. What I have done, that's enough. And if you can't do that to your own work, if you can't look at it, you know, like that guy looking at that pig in the movie, Babe, and say, that'll do, pig. It's enough. This far, no more. You're going to have a problem. You need physical rest, first of all. But there's also a second, deeper kind of rest that days off and endless vacations alone can never provide for you. And that's a deeper kind of rest, the REM, 
of the soul that the writer of Hebrews goes on to describe. Here it is. He said, for if Joshua, remember that guy, story time, if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken later about another day. There remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. All right, he's saying that if the only kind of rest that mattered was physical rest, that when Joshua brought the people out of the wilderness into the promised land and he gave them the laws and the covenant, they built a culture and a society that obeyed the command, that obeyed rest, if that would have been enough, if physical rest would have been enough for human beings, God never would have said, oh, there's still another kind of rest, another kind of rest that I'm offering you. Meaning God holds out the promise of the Sabbath of the soul. Another kind of deeper, more spiritual, primal kind of rest every human being must get. Let me show you a biblical case study to show the difference between spiritual and physical rest. There's a a story in the New Testament, and you may know where I'm going with this, uh, about two women, both whom Jesus loved, both two amazing women, one named Martha, one named Mary. And when Jesus came into their home and said he stopped by their house to visit, and isn't that a lovely thought, by the way? that Jesus just stopped to visit his friends in their own house. I love that. But one day Jesus comes to visit and his presence in these two women's lives causes a, a, a divergence, a, a dichotomy in reaction. And we see that one sister, Mary, when Jesus came in, when rest itself entered her home, she was able to put down her work. It says she came and she sat at his feet. And that's not just a nice thing there. It's actually a technical term because to sit at someone's feet was a position of a, of a disciple to a rabbi. Jesus was a rabbi. People sat at rabbi's feet. This is showing that the gospel writer and Jesus are both elevating the status of women in their culture, see? Now, you say, well, I'd like to hear more of that. That's another sermon for another day, but that's a good one. Yeah, that's what's happening here. He's elevating her status because she's sitting at his feet, but Martha doesn't do that. Martha gets real irritated, grumpy, shaky. She's doing all this stuff in the kitchen. What does she say to Jesus? I love this. Oh, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself. How many of you ever thought that before? Don't raise your hand. Man, we could just live on that all day. What do we see in this question? Oh, first of all, we see Mary's not lazy. No, no, no. She was actually in the kitchen doing the work, but when she came out, oh, she was coming into rest itself. She was serving. She wasn't just sitting around eating spiritual bonbons, watching the endless television, you know, whatever, you know, TBN channel all day or whatever. That is, no, she was working, serving. But when Jesus came in, she could put her doing down. But look at Martha's spiritually restless heart here by contrast. She accuses Jesus of not caring. She feels abandoned, implies her sister's lazy. She's not humble. She's proud. Why is she acting like this? Even when Jesus is in her life, in her home, in her presence. Oh, it's because Martha didn't just work to live. Martha lived to work. See, all her baking, all her cooking, her pies and her meats and her cakes weren't just a way of blessing others. 
They were a way of blessing herself, a way of getting a life, getting meaning and a reputation. And when that was threatened, she couldn't handle it. And now she's about to show us the one primary, non, you know, totally just obvious element, symptom of a restless heart. She utters this command at Jesus. She finally says, Lord, tell her to help me. Oh, man. Here is the ultimate evidence of a spiritually restless heart. It's blaming, laying blame for our unhappiness at the feet of circumstances in our lives. Blaming the other people in our lives, blaming our circumstances for our unhappiness, saying it's because of that person or those people or that thing that I am unhappy. No, 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 no. What I'm not saying is that people who are hurting you don't need to stop. I'm not talking about extreme forms of abuse. That's not this. And I'm not saying that what's happening isn't unjust or wrong or unfair or that it shouldn't stop right now. It ought to. But what I'm asking you is, what if it doesn't? What if those people never change, never quit treating you that way? What are you going to do about it? Matter of fact, it's probably safe to bet some of those people are never going to change. You might as well go ahead and guard your heart that way. But whether you do or whether you don't, the question still remains, what are you going to do when the Marys in your life don't start picking up pots and pans and making the world how you want it? Martha believed, like we believe, a lie that we are really unhappy solely because of things outside ourselves. See, a spiritually restless heart believes that things on the outside are changed, will be happy. A spiritually restless heart can't hear what Mary heard, can't sit and get the affirmation, the consolation, the encouragement Mary got. A spiritually restless heart can't see how rich it is in Christ, only how poor it appears to be in its own eyes. A few years ago, my family and I went to Southern California with some help from some credit card miles. We went to see grandma and grandpa out there, who, by the way, have relocated here now. Total life upgrade. It's great having them around. But anyway, back in the day, we were on our way to SoCal to visit them, and we told our kids this. We gathered them around, and we said, here's the plan. We are going to take you to Legoland. We're going to go camping on the beach where it's like 30 degrees cooler than it is here. And grandma and grandpa, they're suckers. Man, when you get there, they're going to have a present in their hands awaiting you. We're going to fly your favorite airline, JetBlue, because you've got a TV. It's every American's right to watch TV in the sky, don't you know? And you're going to get a free soda. You can't get them at home, but a whole 12 ounces of sugar, carbonated, caffeinated refreshment for you awaits you at 35,000 feet. And when we get off the plane, you'll get a present and we'll take you to in and out because that's when you could get that there and not here. Sounds like a great trip, right? Oh, but only two days before we were about to leave. Our little three-year-old blessing in our lives began to have a nuclear meltdown thrashing, gasping on the floor. Why? Here's why. Because he only had $4. Now, the kid can't do math at this point. He couldn't do math. It doesn't matter. It's just a number. Four, four hundred, four thousand. It doesn't matter. Oh, see, he was upset because of his circumstance in his life. Now, no one with sufficiently developed cognitive powers <laughs> would thrash around on the 
floor like a dying fish. Over $4 when they got airfare, amusement park tickets, paradise at the beach, and two people who can't wait to grant their every wish awaiting them, but we are not talking about a cognitively developed person. We're talking about a child. A child, yeah. And you know as a parent that the real problem with the child isn't $4 or no dollars or $400. The problem is that the child can't grasp the grandeur of what's been promised to him. The child can't grasp the totality of what awaits him and who he is and who loves him. Oh, if he had an accurate grasp of what's been promised him, he could let his circumstance go. Let me ask you, if Jesus would have answered that prayer, would have compelled Mary to come into the kitchen. Do you really think it would have fixed Martha? Really would have cured her heart? No, 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 no. She needed something different. See, Jesus is saying to her by not answering her prayer, he's saying, Martha, Martha, I love you so much. I'm gonna let your pots boil over. I'm gonna let your cakes fall. I'm gonna let your dishes stay dirty for a while so that you will somehow, someway come to the end of yourself and be forced to see you need a kind of rest like your sister's getting. It's only found in me. Oh, would she have been okay even if her circumstances changed? No, she wouldn't. She needed something else. Therefore, so do we. What is it? Number three, how do we get it? How do we get it? If you're keeping score at home, sports fans, you may notice I said there was three kinds of rest, but you're saying I've only heard about two. You're correct. You're tracking well. We need, yes, number one, physical rest. Number two, spiritual rest. Oh, but that spiritual rest, it's tricky, isn't it? It's slippery. It's elusive. How do we get it through the third kind of rest mentioned through something here called gospel Rest, gospel rest. Look at verse two. It says, for we also have had the good news. It's literally the word gospel, evangelion. Good news proclaimed to us. We've had the gospel preached to us, but the message they heard what didn't help them, no value to them because they didn't share the faith of those who obeyed. Now the question is, so how do we get gospel rest? Verse three, now. We who have believed enter that rest. This is saying we can get the deeper spiritual rest of REM of the soul that we have to have through a simple choice by believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Oh, but it's not just any part. It's a maybe unseen part. It's actually a shocking part, something I didn't see until this week. Let's take a look at it. Verse 12, at the end of those verses, at the end of the passage, maybe you were like made to memorize them if you grew up in Sunday school like I did. The the word of God is living and active and those are nice verses. We give them to our kids. They weren't meant to be nice at all. They're meant to be graphic and shocking and arresting. Let's take a look. It's in the context of rest. It concludes the passage this way. It says, for the word of God is alive and active. You say, well, that sounds pretty nice, not too scary, kind of like my probiotics I taste. You know, they're alive and active. (laughs) It's not it. Look what it says. Sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts, attitudes of the heart. 
Oh, now oh, we're introduced to a violent metaphor. This is saying the Bible is like a sword. Now it could have said anything when it comes to rest. It could have said, now the Bible's like a fluffy pillow where you lay your head to take a nap. It could have said, the Bible's like a yummy ice cream cone. You, take, you, know, you eat on a hot day to cool off. Or the Bible's like a yummy you know, food truck taco you get in Austin, Texas. Man, it hits the spot. Now, the Bible's kind of like all those things. But before those, beyond all those, it's saying it is this. First, it's saying the Bible is like a violent and bloody instrument of death. Mm. Wow, what's this? To our modern sensibilities, we're thinking, really? That's unnecessary? Did it have to go there? But it's offensive at worst, right? What's going on? Oh, it's smelling salts waking you up to what's about to come next. Verse 13. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Let me read that again. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. You know that thing you think you're keeping secret? You think it's hidden? It's really not. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. Now, I'm not sure... Matter of fact, I'm positive we don't catch the severity of this. Because this is saying on one hand that because the Bible is alive, because God sees everything, when we come to it, we're like a naked person. That's what the word means, uncovered. We are naked standing before someone holding a sword. Which means this, even when you come to the Bible and it doesn't make you a little squeamish, if it doesn't make you a little awkward or uncomfortable, it's because you don't get it. You're not understanding it rightly. I mean, could you ever feel comfortable standing naked before someone holding a sword right in front of you, waving that sword around. You think, man, what are you about to do with that? Man, it's a little awkward up in here, right? Man, what are you going to slice? What are you going to cut, man? Not sure I like that. You would feel so awkward, so uncomfortable. Why? Because you're uncovered standing before a sword. But not only are we naked, we're also something else. The translation says, laid bare, But most of them say open. There's a reason for this. Because the word in the Greek is the word trahelizo, which is where we get our word for trachea, our breathing tube, our neck tube. This is a word used in ancient animal sacrifices. See, when a sheep or a goat was brought to the Jewish temple, before that priest would ever slit the throat of the sacrificial animal given to absolve the sin and the guilt of the one who brought it. Before its throat was slit, it was opened. It was laid bare by the priest. It was trahelizoed, can you see? And what it's saying, therefore, is this. When it comes to the issue of rest, if you won't believe what the Bible says about you, that first of all, you need physical rest, but that even more than that, you need, you must have a kind of spiritual rest you can only get from the gospel of Jesus. In the end, if you don't go to the gospel for rest, if you won't go to Jesus for rest, in the end, you'll end up slitting your own throat. You say, well, that's kind of harsh. Oh, but think about it. If you never rest, right? If you don't obey that, physically what will happen to you? You'll overwork. You'll drive yourself to an early grave. At the, at the best, you'll have a reduced lifespan. But Oh, but even beyond that, 
more important than that, let me ask you this question. Why does Jesus command you not to worry? Hmm? Why does he command that? Oh, it's because worry, worry, if left unchecked, will kill you as well. Stress and anxiety can literally kill you, send you to an early grave. If you never rest physically, yeah, you can die. But if you never rest spiritually, if you can never do what the old hymn says, and lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, you'll send yourself to an early kind of grave as well. You'll slit your own throat with worry, with fear, anxiety, pressure. Your worry will be the death of you. It'll be the death of your marriage, the death of your relationships. You'll make your kids bleed for you. You'll make your spouse bleed for you. Your employees bleed for you. Your business bleed for you. The country and the world bleed for you if you don't go to the gospel for rest. See, this is saying we are all open-necked before the word of God and something will pay the price to satisfy our need for rest. You put it on your kids. You'll make your spouse pay the price. Make those people, that people group, pay the price for your rest. Oh, but maybe, just maybe, if we'll believe what the gospel says, we can now see the miracle of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. Because Isaiah the prophet says Jesus was like a what? A lamb led to where? Come on. To the slaughter. This is saying his own throat was cut. Why? Oh, because the punishment for our what? Come on. Our peace. Our peace. The punishment for our peace was laid upon him and by his stripes wounds were healed oh what hebrews is driving you to see is that you have oh you've got the gospel rest available for you you've got rescue available for you every time that throat gets tight every time you're open neck laid bare before something in the world the walls close in the pressure mounts the bills come or whatever happens at that moment you're tempted to come and make someone else pay the price you now you go to the fire of the gospel you warm your heart that price goes right back on Jesus. He paid the punishment for our peace. You got to do what Mary did. Martha couldn't. You lay your deadly doing down, down at Jesus' feet, and stand in him gloriously complete. We get gospel rest by believing the rest of the gospel. See that? which is that Jesus is our rest. The writer says, let us therefore, we got to make every effort, do whatever it takes to enter that rest. Say, how can I do that? I'll give you one way as we close. Recently, I was up one morning reading my Bible, praying because I'm a Christian, right? All right. Outside my window, saw this hummingbird flying around, flitting around, going from flower to flower, tree to tree, perch to purse, effortlessly. And I heard the voice of God say to me, consider the birds of the air. I said, all right, I know where this is coming from, right? Matthew 6, Sermon on the Mount. I said, okay, Lord, what about them? What about the birds? Birds, Jesus said, look at this, Matthew 6. Do not sow or reap nor do they gather in the barns. He's saying, in a way, they're worthless. They don't do anything. Birds don't have a job. They don't make anything. They never make a sale. They don't gather. They don't reap. They got no promise to stand on that they've sowed. Now they're going to reap. They do nothing to earn what I do for them. It's grace and grace alone. Consider the birds of the air. He's saying, listen, the value of a bird 
isn't in what it can produce. The Lord spoke these words to me. He says, they aren't loved for what they can do for God. They're just loved because they're made by God. And Jesus goes on to ask, aren't you worth much more than they are? Rhetorical question. The answer is yes. And when the answer your heart gives is yes, now you've entered that rest. See, now you've entered the rest. We're worth more to the Father's heart than a bird. If he cares for them in their circumstance, how much more will he care for us in ours? See, the promise of entering his rest still stands today. Come to me, Jesus said, all ye who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. I'm gentle and humble in heart. Learn from me, for you will find rest for your souls.